Um, Let's pray one more time. Our God and our Father, what we just sang is perhaps perhaps it just blew by us um, more words in the song, but it is good to stop and praise you for the fact that we can simply open our mouths and call you Father, Yahweh, the one who revealed himself to Abraham, the one who called out the weakest, the smallest of nations, ethnic Israel. You called them out for yourself. And yet here we are, me, an ethnic mutt, calling you Father. That is a miracle upon miracles. For I was once far off. I had no business calling you Father. Absolutely no business. And yet you have reached far and wide, even to me, to call me to yourself, to welcome me into your very household, to put a table, to put a a chair at your dining room table with my name on it, and to welcome me as if I am your only son with the same smile upon which you have for your son, Jesus Christ. That is a glorious miracle, and I simply want to stop today and acknowledge it and say, praise your name. Goodness me, the fact that we are all here right now doing what we're doing right now is a miracle. A glorious miracle of your amazing grace. So before we go on any further, I just wanted to put my finger on that and say, thank you for you. Thank you for for who you are. I'm glad you're the God that's there. You didn't have to be so good to us, and yet here we are. Thank you. So, now I'm just smiling at you, and that's great glory to you. That glorifies you just to to smile about you. But we ask for you to do yet still more. We ask for you now to make your word clear to us. Make it three-dimensional. Make it jump off the page. In me, in us, if if there's a spiritual chiropractic adjustment so to speak, that needs to be made here, would you by your spirit gently but, but directly and firmly do that in each one of us? Grant us to know what we should know and what we know, will you please grant us to really know it? Would you grant what we know to go beyond just speaking it in Sunday school? Grant it to dwell richly within us, to literally, actually reform us, please. That is not something a preacher can do. That is not something that any human being that can do. That is not something that we can do by our own power. Will you please commission your spirit now to work amongst us and do that, please? Get more glory from us, we ask. So lead me now, constrain my words, make them clear, and use them, please, now, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. The gospel questions every society, every people that it enters, every family, every club, every state, every community, it questions it. The good news about Jesus then undercuts the wisdom of every culture it confronts because the wisdom about Jesus is not of this world. It is not from this world that the gospel came. It was from outside the system outside the circle of all of man's wisdom that God invaded our world with redemption, with transformation, with good news. Thus, Jesus did not come to heal, he said, those who are well, but those who are sick. In the same way, God did not send Jesus to affirm what we already love, but to question it, to undercut it, and to transform it, to turn it on its head. We'll see this clearly today in the three statements that we're going to consider from Paul, from 1 Corinthians 3, that were just read a moment ago. These three statements begin with the question, do you not know? Do you not know? Paul asks this phrase or some variation of it in all his letters, and every time he does it, it's, it's his way of saying, um, you know, this is really important. Kind of like when Jesus would say, truly, truly, truly. This is Paul's way of saying, you really need to know this, and you don't. 
<laughs> I mean, maybe you say you do in Sunday school, but, but looking at your life, you don't. You may know it, but you don't know it. By how you're living or by how you, this church, Thessalonians, the Corinthians, how you are responding to some problem, you're getting squeezed and this is what's coming out. You know it, but you don't know it. Um, so there are three of these, three truths today that Paul is saying to us, do you not know this? And maybe, maybe you say today, no, I, actually, I did not know that. <laughs> Great. That's why we're here, <laughs> to take something new, to learn it. It's not new teaching. Maybe new to you, but it's not new. This is old. This is really old, what Paul is teaching, as I hope to show. So today's the day. Let, let's look at each of these statements. Today's the day to consider them and to actually know them for true wisdom in this life, for true wisdom. Um, and as we do, we're going to consider each truths, practical implications along the way. And the first one will be longer than the other two. The first one is this, you all are God's temple. You all are God's temple. Um, do you not know, Paul asks, that you, in the plural, you all are right now God's temple. And uh, the, the passage here, I think I, I, think I failed to, uh, I think I failed to put it into a slide. The verse that we are referring to <clears throat> is uh, 3.16. 3.16, if we could bring that back up. You all are God's temple. Um, if you did, if you, if you did know, then you would know that the you here is a collective you. It's a plural. You all are God's temple in which God dwells. And if you did know this, then Paul is saying, then you wouldn't be acting you know, in so many ways, so many ways, on the one hand, robed with piety, robed with a Christian piety, but at the same time, acting with naked self-interest. Naked self-interest. You, you would not be so competitive, one-upping one another, looking from side to side to see if someone is better than you. You would not be driven by comparison, by envy, followed by strife. I follow so-and-so. Oh, yeah, well, I follow Jesus. Oh, yeah, that sort of thing. So th th there is a deep thread throughout the whole Bible that unpacks Paul's statement here. But, but the fact is, Paul just teaches it straight out of the box. We all, all together, are the body of Christ. We are God's building. We are the temple of God. The temple. You all. Not me. It's really weird. Like, like right now, there's a spotlight, bright, bright lights right? On me right now. So there's a, there's a sense in which our building, the way we have, it's, it's fine, there's no one's sin, but, the, but the, the, the way we have this set up right now is the opposite of what Paul is saying here. Because what Paul is saying here is that God's big show, the display of his glory, is not the guy in the pulpit. It is y'all. You all are the big show. You all are the display of God's glory in the world. You're the miracle. All of us all. We're the miracle. Um, as I said last week, you know, we, we, all, we thought that the totem pole, the most important person, was at the top, but it's not. It's at the bottom. Look at the bottom of the totem pole, not the top. The, the church, the people together, one body is, is the shining jewel of God's saving work in the whole world, the display of God's glory. You all, not here. It's fine. We have it set up like this. It's fine. It's fine. But, um, and, and, and therefore, what, what that means is we, we all are God's temple. There's, there's a few massive implications of this, one of which is this, that God's big show, the display of his glory in the world, is not also you. It's not me, but it's also not you. Growing by yourself, by your own power, reading your Bible by yourself, 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 yourself. That's not true either. Um. You, you got that. You know where you got that from. You got that because you're American. <laughs> you know, we're Americans. We're rugged individualists. 
You got that from your country. You come by that honestly. So did I. You didn't get it from the Bible. Um, that's American individualism, which we could also call Corinthian individualism. Now, don't get me wrong. Each must carry his own load, and we will come back to this. Paul says this in Galatians. Each must carry his own load. Um, each of us must take responsibility for himself or herself. That's also true. But um, what is the great display of God's glory in the world? It is not you, yourself, and me. It is us together, the church, of which we are a local manifestation of this shining jewel, this great display of God's glory in the world. God does not have many temples. God does not have many temples. There is only one now, Paul says, the church, the bride of Christ. And again, our church is one local manifestation of that larger bride. We are the temple of God here in miniature. That's what we are. <laughs> you mean us? Little old Grace Church meeting in an industrial park? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. It takes faith to believe it. It takes faith to see it sometimes. Um, but it's true. Um, excuse me, someone's talking to me. Isaac. Okay. <clears throat> we, we are that temple of God in miniature, which, you know, again, by, God, by the world's standards is all wrong. Is it, isn't, aren't I the, the shining example of God's glory here? Aren't I the display? No, no. Which, again, it's foolishness. Like, you go to a Taylor Swift concert. Why do you go to a Taylor Swift concert? To see the people in the, in the chairs that don't use the chairs, they're just standing up the whole time? No, no, you go to see Taylor Swift. That's the world's logic. But the gospel turns everything on its head. The big show is not what's happening here, but you all. Say it again and again. We have to say it again and again because we don't get it. <laughs> It takes repetition. Um, we are the temple of God. Paul says that we are now, right now. Paul does not say, you can be if you're good enough. If you build a building bigger than the Baptist down the street, then you'll be the real temple of God. If you really get your worship act together, if you get a better youth ministry, if you do this or do that, then you'll be the temple of God. If you're really excellent, then you'll be the, te the temple of God. No, he says, you are. Foolishness of God. No offense, but that he chose you and me to be that. <laughs> me included. Foolishness of God. We are the temple of God right now. Undeserving sinners <laughs> made into that temple all by his grace, all by his profound, amazing grace. Foolishness. <laughs> Foolishness. Shouldn't there be a big building? Shouldn't there be this glory? Shouldn't there be a gold dome on the top? Shouldn't there be all this other stuff? No, 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 no. Those ones in the industrial park over there, there's my temple. Foolishness. Us all together. Now, you might ask, where does Paul get this new teaching from? It's not, it's not new at all. It's not new at all. It's, it's, God's been... God's been uh, projecting this right on the surface of the text of the Bible all along. This has always been God's way. That there was the garden where God dwelled with man, and then man was to go out and tend and tame and oversee Eden. Um, right there, God meeting with man together, and all Adam and Eve's offspring were to become that, that people of God inside Eden, tending, overseeing Eden. This is why in the desert, moving on, that the people of God dwelled in tents with the tabernacle in the middle, the people of God around the tabernacle, the tabernacle designed like Eden. This is why all the other temples after the tabernacle were designed in the same way, God's people together with God dwelling in the midst of them. Yes, individual people filled with the Spirit for specific purposes, that's not not true, but the dwelling place of God was with his people together, not silo persons everywhere else. 
not the building, but the people, even when scattered, but especially when gathered around God, with God in the middle. Moses, you know, in the desert, when, when it says that Moses left the camp to meet with God, he didn't go out, he actually went to the center, because the tabernacle was in the middle of all the people. So God's always been projecting this, that he would be around his people, that he would dwell in the midst of his people. It's not a building, it's people. Now, in one way or the other, the rest of the, of the book of Corinthians is just Paul unpacking what I'm talking about here, that we are the temple, so what? That's basically, in some way or another, the rest of Corinthians. We are the temple of God. So I'm not going to preach the rest of the book yet. But what Paul says here in verse 17 of chapter 3, he first says what we should not do about this, because we are the temple of God. We must not tear down God's house because we won't succeed. If you try to tear down God's house, God will tear you down first. Or is it our house? Should I say, is it our house? Don't tear down your house. And the answer is yes, it's both. It's both. When later in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul speaks of defiling your body with sexual immorality, again, the word you is plural throughout, and it seems best to understand that when there is any sexual immorality in the church, for instance, it defiles the whole body. Your body is the temple of God, the church. Do nothing individually out there or in here to defile it because it is holy to God. It is holy. That means it is precious to Him, set aside for His good pleasure like a bride. A bride is chosen of all the women of the earth. I choose this one. That's what the church is to God. Do nothing to defile her. And he says, you all are that temple where the Spirit of God dwells. This is why we, we like to create hierarchies of sin. You know, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. But as I've said, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating that whenever you read in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit being grieved, it's not usually connected to those really bad sins that we think about that we put at the top of the hierarchy. It's almost always, in fact, it is always related to what Paul is talking about here, jealousy, strife, people cutting each other down in the church, people tearing down God's house. That's what really gets the Spirit. So let's think about some ways to apply this, this first principle that we all are God's temple. Again, how do we tear down God's temple? The most obvious from the text in front of us from chapter 3 is in verse 3. Um, from jealousy and strife. Jealousy and strife. So the first point of application here is this. Repent and avoid all jealousy and strife. Repent of aggressively. Aggressively, as if it's just it's a snake that's about to bite you. Of, and avoid all jealousy and strife because these two sins always grow together. Did you know that sin, sins never grow by themselves? Sins always grow in bunches. And jealousy or envy and strife, conflict, they always grow together in the same clump of grapes. Always. After all, James writes this in James 4. You know what? I'm, I'm going to read it all the way through here. James 4. Um, and this is, by the way, when it comes to relationships with each other, this is a passage of scripture that you ought to have a working definite, a working knowledge of. You ought to know. James says this, what causes quarrels and fights among you, plural? Is it not this, that your passions, or it could be translated just strong desires, things that you desire strongly for whatever reason. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. I strongly desire Dan's cinnamon rolls. You know, that's, that's what this could mean here, as do all of you. Um, is it not this, that your passions or strong desires are at war within you, plural? I've said this last week. Again, one person wants one of Dan's cinnamon rolls and another person wants it, but there's only one left. And so they go to war, in this case, over Dan's cinnamon roll. 
Um, you desire, verse 2, and you do not have, so you murder. Or as you both run for the cinnamon roll, one trips the other guy to get it. Um, and Paul then, or excuse me, James goes on to say, um, you covet and cannot obtain. That's not the problem. The problem is that you, the result is then you fight and you quarrel, you wrestle over the cinnamon roll. You do not have, why? Because in all of that, God disappeared. You never once thought to ask God, God, can I have a cinnamon roll too? You're the God of all cinnamon rolls. You could cause Dan to make more if you wanted. Would you? Can I have a cinnamon roll too? Even though Joe got the last one? Never occurred to us. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You, you never say to yourself, oh, but, but not my will be done, but yours be done. If, it, if it's your will that I never have another cinnamon roll again, your will be done. You ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then he turns and he says, verse 4, you adulterous people. Um, This is one place where our English translation is actually more pious than God. Uh, Okay, there might be kids in the room. Um, There's another word, pull out your thesaurus. The the, the best translation for this um, is a word that starts with W-H and ends with R-E. No, I'm, that, that is what it says. The, the translation is actually being nicer than James was, which I don't think is quite right. Um, and the reason why he says that is when you do that, then when God has disappeared, then you, you show uh, in the next sentence that friendship with the world is enmity with God. You show that you've defected from God. You've become a friend with the world and an enemy of God. You've defected from him. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. Verse 5, or do you not suppose that it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? So here's, here's the, the big point here, is that when we act towards each other with jealousy, we come into conflict with God's jealousy. Yes, God is jealous. For what? for the unity that should exist, that already exists within his temple around his spirit and by his spirit. And when someone wants to tear that down by their own jealousy, God gets jealous and you won't win. (laughs) His jealousy is bigger. Um, But there's good news. Verse 6, he gives more grace. Wherever we have done that, there is room to repent and return back to him and say, Lord, I've done it. I didn't want to, but I did it. I confess, please forgive me. And he gives more grace. Not only does he give forgiveness, he arrives with another cinnamon roll too, sometimes. Um, He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. God is actively opposed to those who proudly assert their self-will in the church and like a bull in a china shop come through and insist on their own way and push other people aside in jealousy and envy and self-striving. God opposes them. Can you imagine that? Can you picture that? God is actively opposed to those people because this is his temple, holy to him. Um, but the opposite is also true. He gives grace to the humble, to the humble. God is actively open-handed, just, just dumping out barrels of, of blessing upon the humble. <clears throat> There's no middle ground with God. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So then James says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Place yourself under him. Resist the devil. Whenever the devil tempts you to jealousy and envy and striving and self-will and, and elbowing each other, resist that and the devil will flee from you, he says. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And we'll come back to what he means here by double-minded in a second. But he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then the good news is he will exalt you. 
he will exalt you. The very thing that you were trying to get by your own power before, he will do. <laughs> the the self-exaltation, the, the, well, he'll do it anyway. He's so gracious that way. He gives more grace. <clears throat> so then again, James sums it up. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, are you, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So, <clears throat> we must repent and avoid all jealousy and strife and then submit ourselves. Number two, we must repent of thinking with American individualism or American dualism. Again, I've already mentioned this, but this is a mindset that we must train ourselves to repent of because it is simply not true as Christians. We are not a collection of individuals. We are an us. We are an us. So we must let loose of the very American idea that we are individuals, but we must also let loose of the very American idea that there are two temples, or that there are many temples. There is only one temple, and yes, I'm going to go there. It is not residing on a hill in Jerusalem. Not yet, anyway. Soon. I mean, at some point, it will. But what Paul is saying here is about us is not some kind of metaphor. When Paul says that we are the temple of God right now, what he means is we are the temple of God. <laughs> That's what he means. Um, the Bible has already recorded for us in Ezekiel 10, 18, that God's glory left that old physical temple. It recorded it very vividly for us. And then it came again as though in a form of a dove, not, not upon the temple, not upon the building, but upon a person, Jesus, at his baptism. And then the Spirit came again, not, not on a building, but on people on the day of Pentecost, as though in the, in, in the form of tongues of fire. The Spirit has come again, and it has dwelt among his people. But those people now, as Peter says, are living stones by which the temple is being built up, you and me. There are not two temples, nor are there many. There is one, and it is comprised of us, all united to the Spirit, by the Spirit, to the Lion of Judah, who is a Lamb, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God dwelling in glory in the midst of His people, the risen Lord Jesus. So number three, having repented of these two things, how we must realize that number three, how we handle ourselves out there reflects on us all. Paul will come back to this again, but it's worth saying right now, you are never by yourself or alone. You are always part of a greater whole, and this greater whole that you are a part of is greater than any other whole you could ever be a part of in this world. You, you as a Christian, are one of the living stones of God's temple. You are the, the, the Spirit of God on the move in the world, the very manifestation of God, God's work, His jewel in the world, bringing the gospel to the nations. You are part of the only organization, the only entity that will exist into eternity. Have you ever thought about that? Amen. Everything else is going to go. It's all going to get burned up. You are part of something great, foolishly so, by God's foolishness, but great. The greatest movement humanity has ever known. You are part of a greater whole that is holy in God's sight, and therefore secret sin affects us all. So I just want to say, if you are addicted to or chained down to some secret sin in your life, I want to say two things. You need to deal with it. You need to repent of it. Let's, let's start there. Let's make that very clear. You need to repent of it. Number two, this community is how you do it. This community is how you do it. You, you don't go out and get fixed and then come back in here to join us. No, no, no. This is where that addiction gets solved. This is where that, that secret sin that, that's chained you down gets cut. That chain gets cut and you get freed. It is amongst us. 
as we will see, God, because, okay, the, the fourth point here, God has so designed us to be dependent on one another in our personal responsibilities. It is your responsibility, Christian, with that addiction or that secret sin, to repent of it. It is your responsibility. And God has made you dependent on others for grace to do just that. We all must carry our own load. We all must strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12. And yet at the same time, if we are fundamentally in us, this means that there are basic supplies for that which we are responsible to do that we can only acquire through partnership with other people within this us. Both our dependence on each other and our personal responsibility are true. And where we go wrong is that we emphasize one or the other. The goal then is to take ourselves in hand and to take glad responsibility for ourselves and our own repentance and our own obedience to the Lord Jesus. And then when we do that, we immediately see, oh, I ain't got everything I need for this. I need others. And then we reach out humbly and partner with each other in this. And then we are supplied with what I need. Um, let, let, me, let me give one very practical application. The time changed today. Which means it's the season for seasonal affective disorder. I, growing up this time of year, I hated it. Because I, I got down every year. Every year. Hate it. You know, the early, early nightfall and just stinks <laughs> for people like me. I don't know. I can't explain why. Um, now is not the time for you, A, to go all hard on yourself and, and chug your way through it by yourself. Go easy on yourself and reach out to others if you need help, especially this time of year, if you're especially prone to being affected by seasonal affective disorder. Reach out to someone else. We are an us, no man left behind. But the same is true for families. In our families, men are the ones who are to take the glad, gladly assume responsibility, sacrificial responsibility for what happens in that home. And inevitably, because it's men, we gladly assume that responsibility and we get to it and then we quickly realize, oh man, <laughs> I need to learn a lot here. <laughs> I need to learn, I need, I, need, I need help with this, I need partners, I need guys I can look to that I can look up to. You need other people around you. You gladly assume responsibility and you gladly partner with other men who can help you do it well. Both are true. By partnering with those men, you find the wisdom you need, the wisdom you need, which we will come to in a moment. But the reason why so many Christians today are spiritually inert and impotent is that they only take personal responsibility for themselves in their own personal silo. And or, so, that, so on the one hand, some of us are always over here with ourselves, depending on myself, doing it myself, or we are entirely dependent on others, never taking personal responsibility for ourselves. And both, Paul is saying, are true. Both are implications of the fact that we are in us, we are the temple of God. And the temple is holy. Okay, number five. This is why we desire that only Christians be members here at Grace. This is why we do membership the way that we do. Uh, on the one hand, we don't want to make it harder to become a Christian than it is, or to, we don't want to make it harder to become a member of our church than it is to get into heaven. Um, but on the other hand, we desire for our church to be an accurate representation in miniature of the larger whole, the temple of God. That's why when you become a member, we ask you, are you a, are you a Christian before you become a member? This is why we don't do a theological exam, however, for you to become a member and ask you what you think about eschatology. But we do want to know, hey, are you a Christian? Are you already a living stone of this temple? That's it. That's it. Number six, our union together as the temple informs even how we greet each other. Paul will say later to the Corinthians and to a couple other churches that <clears throat> we should greet each other with a holy kiss. A holy kiss. I think the kiss part is culturally conditioned, thank God. Um, but... 
but not the principle behind it. Not the principle behind it. Our partnership together as the very temple of God should inform even the actual way that we greet each other. Now, for you, I'm less interested in the what, but, but again, the attitude and, and do you actually know that we are the temple and then how that flows out from you one to another. For me, it comes out, to, what makes the most sense to me is just warmness, a hearty handshake that, that's, that's unique, that's different than how I would shake anybody else's hand in the world. It's a, it's a warm look in the eye. It's perhaps another hand on the, on the arm. It's, it's a tone of voice that's warm and welcoming, especially when some, with someone new. It's, it's so easy to be warm and welcoming to that guy that you just love the most in church. That, oh, yeah, duh. But, but when someone new comes in, oh, that, 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 that's when, that's when you, the, the question really comes. Do you know what Paul is saying, that we are the temple, including this new one that came in that is also a Christian? How do you greet them? Um... I've known some people who were informed by this temple theology, and, uh, and the way they applied it was um, the order that they greeted people on Sundays. They would walk right past their closest friends at the beginning of Sunday, and they would seek out first those that they did not know at all. Then they would move on to those that they're acquaintances of, and then thirdly, finally, they would greet those people that they know the best in that order. That's how they lived out this doctrine. Because the reality of our temple partnership is greater and deeper and more important than, than the warmness of any clique, any friendship clique anywhere. Now, there are two other statements that Paul makes that we can only touch on briefly, but again, we will unpack them throughout the rest of the letter. The, the second truth is, Paul says this, in order to become wise, you must become a fool. Become a fool that you may become wise. Here's what Paul means. To have as your fundamental wisdom the root for which all your thinking and acting and feeling grows in all of life to be this, Christ in Him crucified. Start with this. To put it another way, uh, as, as Jesus says it in, uh, to everyone in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, First, take my yoke upon you, as James says, submit yourself to me, take my yoke upon you, and then as, as we go along, learn from me. Learn from me. But the order is you, you must first put your, your place, uh, find your place underneath his yoke, submit yourself to him humbly. And when we do that, we listen to him and he leads us wherever he wants to go. To put this another way, here is what Paul, I believe Paul means by become a fool that you may become wise. All that God does and says for us in Christ, for all that I do and say in my life. All that God does and says for us in Christ, for all that I do and say, for, uh, that I do and say in my life. This is what it means to become a fool in order that you may become wise. The fear of the Lord is the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So we gain this fear by becoming a Christian. So first, if you have not become a Christian, become a Christian. Submit yourself to Christ. Submit yourself to Christ. But for everyone else, there, there is only one practical consideration that I would like to say to you, and that is this. Set it in your mind right now to have no problem passages in the Bible. Set it in your mind right now to have no problem passages in the Bible, because there's not. Set it in, it's another way of saying, set it in your mind now that all that God says and does for us in Christ, which is what the Bible, the whole Bible is about, put it in your mind right now that all of that will come to bear in every aspect of your life. There is no problem passages. Becoming a fool in order to become wise means going wherever Christ your Lord's word will take you. Well, lastly, <coughs> excuse me. Paul says one more thing, that all things are yours. Paul says all things are yours. Paul's simple logic is this. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he became Lord of all, Lord of everything. And when he ascended on high, he then took possession of all things, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now, if you are in Christ, 
you have been united to him by the Spirit. That's why you are part of the temple where the Spirit dwells. And therefore, all that is true about him is true about you. All that's true about him is true about you. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 6, that we too have already right now been raised with Jesus in the heavenly places. We have already ascended in spirit. Therefore, piece the logic together, we too have already been given deed to all things. We now already own all things. All things serve us. We are the restoration of Adam and Eve who were meant to have reign over, to have dominion over, and to, to manage and to oversee all things. We simply have not yet taken possession of it, but we do already own it as God's vice regents. The whole world is ours. Let that sit on you for a moment. God has given you the deed to all things in Christ. It's ours. Ours for the asking. For the asking. So what do you want? What do you want that you do not have? If it is idolatrous, then don't ask it or don't expect God to say yes to it. But if it's not, will you ask him for it? We have already come into possession of the world Ask him for it. So think about us and think about what we are here for in Sacramento County. We are the temple of God in miniature here in the midst of Jesus' Eden called Sacramento County. Will you ask him for it? Will you join me in a new season of prayer where you ask him for Elk Grove? where you ask him for Sacramento County, where you ask him for the nations that God has brought here because even the nations are already yours. They are ours. Will you ask him to give us this county? And then asking him, will you be so bold as to believe that he has answered your prayer and go out proclaiming him simply and openly to see how he will answer that prayer? Will you give us the nations? And then we go and we, we preach, we proclaim, wondering how is he going to say yes to that prayer? Will you go out declaring his righteousness? Will you go out declaring his righteousness at school board meetings, at the board of supervisors? Will you go out? Will you go out and will you go out together? Will you go out together because we are an us Will you go out together proclaiming him too busy to worry about who gets the credit because in the end, God will get all the credit because God will do the miracle because the miracle that he has done here, God will do again out there and it'll all be to his glory. What a beautiful thing, as I think one of our former presidents once said, what a beautiful thing when everyone is working together and no one cares who gets the credit. Too busy for the glory, too, too enraptured by the glory of the goal that is quickly to come. That's what a church looks like. That's a church. That's what the Christian life looks like. Going out, proclaiming his name together with a jolly joy, a jolly infectious joy that the nations desire, that the nations are jealous of and are thereby saved. So, when I, sometimes I end our services by saying, you privileged people, and this is why, this passage, this concept is why, you, you are already the temple of God, you're the big show, you're the major leagues, you're, you're the jewel of God's work in the world, you are the bride of Christ, you are it, you doggone privileged people. All by his grace. You are the jewel of God's glory. You are his bride upon which he looks and he sees and only he delights in. And he doesn't see you with all the smudges and all the wrinkles and all the, all, all the sins and the dark places. No, he sees you as you one day will be. He looks upon you and he smiles. You, the church. Oh, you are God's fine china. Oh, he delights in you. Delights in you. So he brought you to his son. That's why, 
That's how he shows you he delights in you, by bringing you to his son in whom you will, you will exist forever and in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Praise his name. Praise his name for what he's doing in us. Let's pray now. Let's pray that he will do yet still more. Oh, Father, I pray. I pray that you will do yet still more amongst us. Pray that you would grant us to, by faith, believe that we are indeed the temple and to treat each other accordingly, to act accordingly out there, but especially in here. Grant us yet still more of the unity that we already possess in Christ. Grant us to believe that you have given us all things that you've already given us, Sacramento County. Grant us a jolly confidence of that. And will you grant us to take possession of it yet still more, please, by the preaching of your gospel. Give us the nations. Give your son the nations, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll now move to communion if the elders could come forward and, and go ahead and begin serving as the children return. If you have any questions about serving your child communion and when to do that and how, I'm happy to talk with you about that. Just let me know. Um, a reminder about um, the community benevolent offering. So today we're taking an offering at the door and the kids with the baskets. This is not our normal offering. Um, we're doing this to collect funds to give to the larger community. So for instance, we give some funds, I believe, to the, uh, the food pantry down the street. Um, we, do, we give uh, funds to various um, outside organizations as we are able, and that's what this is for today. Um, if the men could begin to serve, please. <clears throat> A reminder about communion, that communion is three things. It is, number one, a sober, fearful remembrance of what Jesus did to save us. It is a sober, fearful remembrance of what Jesus did to save us. Number two, it is a celebration, a celebration that it is finished. Thank you. That all of our sins, all of us who believe, are washed away in Jesus. And lastly, thirdly, it is a recommitment, a recommissioning into obedient service of our King. So here we practice open communion, which means that you don't need to be a member of our church to take part. You simply need to have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you've not done that, do it now. <laughs> Become a Christian. Um, so then let's remember, celebrate, and recommit ourselves to Him today.
Our Lord Jesus, on that last Passover night when you broke the bread, it was a symbol of you and how you would be broken. Your body broken for us in our place. All the shame and the guilt and the the negativity, the, the stain of anything and everything that we had done, it would all fall on you. And by that act, you would take it upon yourself, and by that act, we would be cleansed. We would be freed. We say thank you. Thank you for giving yourself for us. What kind of love is this that you would lay down your life for us, we who were so far off and distant, orphans alone in the world, who did not know you and even at that moment were rebelling against you, shaking our fists at you? What kind of love is this? Praise your name. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Let me pray for the cup. Lord Jesus, we know from your word, and we know if we would look inside of our seared consciences, we know that we, we deserve to die for the things that we do wrong. We know this deep within ourselves. But you died for us. You gave up your life, you the eternal son, you who had enjoyed eternal fellowship with the Father from eternity past, entered time and cut your life short for us. Specks of dust on a speck of dust hurtling through space, you died for us. What love is this that you would humble yourself for us to the point of death and even death on a gory Roman cross. What kind of love is this? Praise your name. Thank you. Thank you, and I want to pray, be our Lord, you've earned it. Be our King, you've won that position. Be the one whose words reign over us in every aspect of our lives. That's you. Will you do that and thereby get much glory for the sacrifice you have given? We pray this in your name. Amen. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's triumphant, victorious death until he comes. So let's sing once more.
sacrifice you made for all our sin and all our shame you took the nails and took our place no one else could do what you have done one name is I'm taking away today for myself is a, a joke I once heard. Imagine Jesus going into Jerusalem in his triumphant entry on a donkey and all those people waving their palm branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the person said, imagine if that donkey thought all that cheering was for him. <laughs> all the good that we have is because Christ exalted himself himself. 